0: Welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast, where we aim to be as good at the human side of healthcare as we are at the clinical side of healthcare. My name is Chris Desmond. I'm a physiotherapist who's fascinated by how we can better help the person with the problem. Join us as we learn how to connect better, how to show up better, and how to understand our patients and ourselves better. Welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast. This is a show where we chat with experts about how we can get better at helping the person with the problem. Today, I'm joined by Agnes Sofwa. Agnes is an advocacy consultant. She's a global health advocate. She's a business owner at Unique Living Options and Sickle Cell Disease in Australia. And she's also a registered nurse as well. Agnes, thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule to join me for a conversation this evening.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Chris. This is an one I've been looking forward to. It. Thank I,
0: you. I have as well. I always like to start things off, Agnes, just by asking people, why are you in, interested in the people side of healthcare? What fascinates you about that?
1: Well wow. I guess in, in everything that we do obviously when you enter into a career you sort of pick there's some people that are just uh, you know IT personnel. there are some IT website developers they're just uh, like it to work by themselves but if you you want to have that interaction with people and for me that's what you know prompted me to go into nursing I've got so many things that I used to do before but Nursing is sort of personal. You hear people's stories. You you feel good about yourself when you make a difference in someone's life. So I feel the people's side of um, nursing, because just even talking and laughing is part of medication. So I feel that's the most important thing.
0: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. If you can, if you can have a laugh with your patients, it, it just changes, changes how you feel and changes how they feel as well. And I'm sure there's studies out there actually about the the positive physiological effects of it as well in, in the healing process. But Agnes, nursing wasn't your, it wasn't your first career. Like, no, what, it wasn't. What, what brought you to nursing? <laughs>
1: Well, personal, personal life experiences brought me to nursing. So as I've said, all my life, of course, most of the careers that I've had, have been around people. I've always worked with people. So before I migrated to Australia about 20 years ago, I used to work in the tax office. I used to be a tax auditor and I moved to Australia. I continued on with the, the taxation part of uh, work, but I also fell in love with banking. I loved banking and believe it or not not so much banking itself I just love the uniforms (laughs) (laughs) so I was just like I want to dress nicely as a banker and so I applied for the job and I worked in the the top four big banks here in Australia so the top two I worked for them for a while but then life experiences uh, changed all that I had to leave all that behind and not to do so much on my personal things So I had our youngest daughter now who's 12 and she was diagnosed with a chronic illness called uh, sickle cell disease. It's a blood disorder. So I am one person who hates not knowing. I like as much as I can to understand everything around me. I'm one person who is so boring to watch a movie with. If it's a series, I want to know the end before I finish. So I'll be Googling to find out what happened to the character. So, I decided to drop all everything that I was doing and went and started nursing to understand my daughter's chronic illness. Pretty much that.
0: Mm. Wow. Wow. You also get to wear a uniform as a nurse. It's maybe not quite as nice as a, as a banker, but thank you so much for, for sharing that story. That's a, a really powerful reason to get into nursing. One of the One of the other things that happened. Around the same time, and correct me if I'm wrong with this in terms of the timeline, is that you really started advocating for patients or people with sickle cell disease in Australia.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, what, obviously, the, your daughter was a, was a catalyst with that as well, but why did you decide to step into that advocacy role?
1: Yeah, so I realized when our daughter was diagnosed first, that was a blow to our family. And that's why I went to those extreme circumstances of actually changing my career. If anything, I wanted to study nursing, but I mean, uh, medicine. But then I was just like, how am I going to manage? Actually, I started uh, exploring ways how I would get into medicine school. But I opted to go into nursing, which was quick. I finished and I was able to understand the hospital system and uh, just the condition itself. And then I realized that I had so many questions. Knowing in the the disease process and the complications and all, It's okay, but you need that life experience. And I think this is also part of the reason why you're doing this, to sort of get the person feeling about something. And I needed to understand sickle cell disease from people who've lived with sickle cell disease. Mm. So I started asking questions around, firstly, I wanted to ask the doctors in Australia, and we found that there were no many patients. I was about 12 years ago, very few, less than five, I think, the people that... uh, I could get in contact with. Because of confidentiality issues, the hospital can't tell you who the patients are. They give um, information to those patients to contact you. So only a few contacted me. And so I went to social media to find out, just asking around in Australia, and I couldn't find many people, but overseas, sickle cell disease affects people that come from places where there's malaria, and Africa is one of them. And so you see that where... Africans have migrated to migrants and also Indians, people from the Mediterranean, Italians, Greeks, all those. Any place, pretty much where there's been malaria in the world, there's people who've got sickle cell disease. So I got in touch with these different people in different parts of um, Africa, America, the UK, uh, India. And then I realized most of the people that I got in touch with, they are either part of an organization or something. And I asked around in this country, there was no single organization that was supporting people living with sickle cell disease. So I started off informally trying to raise awareness. Of course, because uh, in Australia, sickle cell disease is considered a rare disease. So even the doctors then, even now, it was like pretty much trans air, And that's why my daughter, it took almost 14 months to get a proper diagnosis. They didn't diagnose her in time, even if they knew for me that I carried the sickle cell gene when I was pregnant, but they didn't do anything further to find out whether my daughter was potentially going to be born with the, the disease. So I started off doing this informally through social media. For, for a lot of years. And then some of the questions that we started getting, we needed to be a recognized organization to have the mandate or the reason why we can contact things like the Department of Health and or We needed to be a legit organization. And that's why we formed a not-for-profit organization to support, pretty much supporting people who are living with sickle cell disease and raising awareness in terms of other doctors and nurses and just all the, the the services surrounding people impacted by And
0: I mean thank you for thank you for doing that and thank you for stepping into into do that work and one of the things that you that you mentioned while you were talking there was understanding people's lived experience of sickle cell disease and obviously like you've you've talked to a lot of people who have sickle cell disease now and, and have a really uh, strong understanding of their lived experience. I'm just curious, how does that stack up against the health professionals that treat that disease? Are they, how's their focus and how is their understanding of the patient's lived experience?
1: Well, as I said, in Australia, if we focus on on Australia so much, it's a a trial and error because not so many people are affected, especially those years. Things now have been different, especially the past four years, because of our organization. Mm. So you know that, for example, on social media, LinkedIn, a lot of clinicians who are hematologists have connected with me and our organization to understand that we do have people in Australia living with sickle cell disease. And so it's still trying and error. And so one of the things that we did when we got registered, I wanted just to do, it, to do this a long time ago, is to create a course to make it easy for, for the clinicians to understand, bring all these resources from different websites and put it in one you know, website, our website, where people can go and learn about sickle cell disease in one hour, pretty much a mm-hmm. number of sickle cell disease. So, yeah, they don't understand and uh, if we have to even go broader in terms of other countries, it's even worse. Because one of the things you, you spoke about, you, you work with people like in chronic pain and all. Oh, sickle cell disease is pretty much pain mm. because it affects the red blood cells and the red blood cells die in the body. And when they die, when, when they go through the, the vessels, they get stuck. So the red blood cells for somebody who lives with sickle cell disease, it dies after 20 days. For somebody who's got no sickle cell disease, the the red blood cells take about 120 days for the new ones to come out. But for someone with sickle cell disease, they die after about 20 days and they turn into a shape which is called, a shape which looks like a a sickle or a half moon. So that's why the the name came from, sickle cell disease, because it's pretty much under the microscope looks like a sickle, which is a farm too. So once it it becomes deformed, it gets stuck in the vessels. And once they are going through, it's blocking. Two things happening. There's a lot of pain when, when the vessels are blocked, but also there's less oxygen going to other parts of the body. So because in the body, our fuel is oxygen, so pretty much all the organs in the body are affected. And so there's a lot of pain that people go through. And people underestimate the pain that people with sickle cell disease go through. So you need to understand it from their point of view. And every person behaves differently when they are in pain. Some people, the way they look, they can look like me, laughing like this. And when you ask them how much pain they have, they'll tell you that I've got pain, 10 out of 10. But the doctors don't understand that. I think they're looking, they want to see like a person is almost dying, screaming on top of their lungs. Every person's pain is different. And that's the main thing that really the people that, and these are stories, that people say they don't be they're not believed when they say they are in pain mm. because that's the most thing that really affects them. So it's pretty much there's still a lot of work to do to be honest. So we started this four years ago and I tell you that there's still a lot of work to do, not just in Australia but the world over in terms of sickle cell research.
0: Yeah and I think it's I think it's a challenge that's not unique to, to sickle cell disease either is that people or healthcare professionals place their clinical knowledge and clinical experience higher than someone's lived experience of the problem and if you haven't had if you haven't had a, that pathology or that health problem then it's really hard for you to understand unless you go out and talk to a lot of people and it's great that you have all of the hematologists coming to you and trying to understand more now which is which is fantastic and i think like that's one of the things that excites me about healthcare is that people are starting to want to learn, yeah, what the patients are going through, not just what the pathological process is for for this disease or for this the syndrome, which is which is fantastic. But I want to I want to swing the conversation a little bit, Agnes, to talk about advocacy work, and I guess so, I mean the the first question is so what is advocacy like? How where does, where does advocacy lie and maybe what are, what are some of the different scopes of advocacy? Because, I mean, you can, you can start a huge organization like you have done, but there are other ways that you can advocate as well. So what is advocacy and, and what's, what's maybe the spectrum of scope for it?
1: Well, I think every every explanation, every person's explanation might be different. For me, it's standing up for yourself. Like if you believe in something, you are your own. I don't want to use the advocate. You are your, your own representative, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you put it that way. You are your own, your own expert because if you are going through something and there's no one out there to help you, Or if there is, even if there's somebody and you feel they're not doing the job that you feel in your heart has to be done, you better stand up and um, do the best you can. So you can do it for yourself, but you can also do it for others. So you recognize that there's a gap in whatever areas of life. It cannot just be disease. There's so many things, injustices, even good things that you can stand up for and say, you know, things can be better. So for me, it's being able to, to stand up and um, speak on behalf of yourself or others to maybe make things better for, for yourself or make things better for, for others. Of course, following the, the resources or the requirements of the law in whatever country you are and uh, being realistic when you are asking for something, advocating or bringing out information. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, be, to, to sort of use the word advocate less here. So you are raising awareness, standing up for something that you believe in, and trying to make things better for others and yourself, if, especially if you feel that there's no help around you. You can do it for yourself and empower yourself to, to do things that you feel are right. And mostly it's, uh, it's around human rights. You just understand that you know, it's, it's, a, it's a right for that individual or for, for that community. You know, that they should be having these services because they are, especially if you are trying to compare it with other similar services, then you know that this community is, is disadvantaged. Obviously, not because maybe people do it deliberately. Some of it mm. could be ignorance and you just have to be that person to stand up and say things are supposed to be this way. So that's the way I, I I I can explain it for me. Looking at our experiences.
0: Mm, cool. Thank you. No, that's a, I really enjoyed that explanation and it kind of gave me a couple of different ways to, to have a look at it as well, which is great.
1: Yeah, I, think, I didn't want to go through the the, the dictionary um, explanation. <laughs> uh-uh.
0: Yeah. I so let me flip it open and
1: human human point. This is the way I understand it, and this is why I do this. If I give you the the dictionary explanation, that would be different. But I don't want to generalize. I just want to explain to you why we do this and why we feel we should stand up and uh, bring out information, raise awareness, and in short, advocate for, like, sickle cell disease.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, thank you for that. And there, again, like... As I was saying, when I asked the question, there, there are ways that we can advocate at a, at a large scale like you're doing at the moment. But I think that the opportunity that probably most people listening to this podcast will have will be, there may be some areas where they can advocate at, at, in a large scale uh, and that they're passionate about if they've been affected by, by an injustice or by a health problem or a particular public health area. But often they're just they're gonna be in the clinic or they're gonna be in the hospital. And there's opportunities for them to advocate for their patients and for themselves and for their, their colleagues in a day-to-day basis that may be smaller in scope than what yeah. we've just been talking about, but probably no less important. And I'm just I'm curious, probably around that scenario of if people are are apprehensive about standing up and about advocating and about being a representative, how could they start to think about doing that? So they could they could step in and become an advocate.
1: I, I you know one of the most important things, as you've said it, out out is to understand why you want to do something. Because mm-hmm. if you 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 go, for example, to to the hospitals and see that you know there's just something, something is not right. If you are living with a certain condition or, or if you are a caregiver for, some, for, for your child, is to understand what's, what are you really, and this is a question if you go on my advocacy website, that's my question, what are you passionate about? It's about to understanding what is it that you need to stand up for something. What gap have you identified and what do you want to see change? Because if you've been asking the same question over and over again and nothing is happening, and you, know, you may even try to ask other organizations and nothing is happening, then you have that zeal to sort of stand up for yourself and understand that, you no, know, look, no one is going to do this for me. You need to have a reason and you need to be really passionate about why you want to do it. It's not for everyone. Mm. it's not for everyone it, it really need, requires discipline and really really understanding why you're doing it if you can't do it yourself speak to other people who might be able to help you because it, it's a lot of work I can't I can't lie but you really have to to be passionate and just say no to failure to say whatever comes whatever I go through this has to be a success so you have to understand why you're doing it and to understand that once you do that, you're going to change it. your life and the lives of others. You have to have the passion for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Are there ways, even, even potentially in a smaller scope with that, say if I give you maybe more of a specific example, that you're seeing, you see a patient who is would really benefit from um, doing something or having something done slightly different within the system, but because they they're not aware of how the system works and how to navigate it, they they maybe don't get that opportunity. I think that's that's often when we have the potential to to step in, and it's a real small part of yeah, advocacy. Yeah, yeah. If, if we
1: talk, if we talk on on the on the if if for example, you talk about the healthcare. Uh, providers part of things I always say we are our patient's advocate Mm. because as you as you said it we might know something in the system that might help somebody and the, the patient has got no idea whatsoever it may be just filling out a document and be able for example to for for me like I remember when we came in Australia we we didn't have jobs we were permanent residents and then I think it took one nurse, or I can't remember who told me at the hospital that, have you tried to apply for Centrelink? Because I couldn't work with uh, the two kids. My kids were young and I tried to take them into daycare. I stopped work after five months. It was just too difficult for me. And I think one, I'm pretty sure it's from, from the hospitals, I think the social workers who said you could do this. And so it only took my me to sign a document and the government was able to help me look after my kids for a while until they're old enough for me to go back for work. So in terms of the healthcare providers, yes, we can be advocates for, for our own patients. We can make um, uh, people's lives better by the information that we have. It may not be on a bigger scale, like mm-hmm. you know, this, like what I do now it can be one-on-one information that you're providing. It can be that brochure. It can be you standing up to your supervisor and say, you know, I think this patient, if we do these things differently, if we refer them to this place, things will be better. So yeah, it's, it doesn't always have to be at a bigger scale. It also can be, you know, just even one-on-one or just that personal information that you are. And, giving that your patients. And this is why we say, our, especially for healthcare providers, we are our patients. And
0: some of the, like one of the words that you used there was, was standing up and some of the advocacy work that we can do feels reasonably comfortable to us. It's like the social worker giving mm. you a document that you need to fill out and sign. And, yeah. and, and there, there it is, but some of it is a little bit scarier. Some of it, we're kind of sticking out, sticking our head up and maybe face if not repercussions then maybe some some negative feedback Mm. do you have any any words of wisdom about for people about that about how do they how do they kind of get over that uncomfortable hump of how this might be received negatively by the system or by by people around i think
1: i'm going to go back to what i said before that if you are doing things within the law If you know, for example, like Agnes is here and I'm going to give her this information, which is rightly the right information that she needs to have. And you definitely stand by that information. You just have to be, you know, bold and be able to to do that. If you really, really understand the system and know that it's going to help somebody, you have to be ready to to do whatever it takes and uh, just stand up because we are making someone, someone's life better. Yes, sometimes you may feel the negative impact or you may be threatened or something like that. But I always believe in if I'm changing someone's life, I, can, I have to do it anyway. I mean, I, I have written stuff, I've said stuff because I believe in it. I believe in it and I believe that if I do it, I will be able to change someone's life. If I don't do it or if I don't have sent through that information, it may be, you know, that person might be impacted negatively. And I, I guess it's it's about why you are doing it and uh, whose life are you changing anyway? If if you are making someone's life better, especially in terms of health, if you are making someone's life better, for me, I would, you know, you just have to be bold and say, you know, whatever it takes.
0: Mm. And that's a really great filter i think just to run it through is if you are feeling a bit afraid of of doing something just ask yourself the question how is this going to change this person's life yeah and the answer is usually pretty straightforward Mm -hmm. um that there's going to be a really strong positive impact from it so yeah it almost becomes a it almost kind of removes all of that discomfort around stepping into it in the first place
1: yeah
0: one of the One of the other things that you mentioned earlier is that advocacy work is going to change your patient's life and it's also going to change your life as well. And I was, I was scrolling back through your LinkedIn posts before or earlier today in preparation for having a conversation with you. And there were quite a few around self-care because Advocacy work is challenging. It's it's difficult and I'm sure it takes a whole lot of time as well at the scope that you do it. But even if we're advocating for people in a hospital ward or in a clinic room, it's usually extra work on, on top of maybe the work that we could just get away with. How do you make sure that you can put all of the stuff that you need to into your advocacy work whilst also looking after yourself and the other patients or the other people that you need to serve at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah I <laughs> I'm glad you, you took that uh, you know liberty to see what I've been posting a few months ago. so I took a 28 days challenge to and no one, no one asked me to. I just felt the need to do that to also look after myself. So during the pandemic like you, I've been pretty busy. I have been able to connect with um, people all over the world, name it any part of the world that has people living with sickle cell disease. And last year we had sessions talking about sickle cell disease five months straight every fortnight. And every fortnight I brought people from different parts of the world, over 50 people from different parts of the world any Asia, Africa, America, South America, Australia, different nationalities for the first time ever in history. And we came together to discuss sickle disease. And so it went on for five months straight, every fortnight I was on social media. And then we finished, we only rested for like two weeks. Again, we started the second, uh, second season So it was, it was, I really felt burnt out. I I did. I love what I do. And mind you, all this is pro bono. I don't get paid for it. Our organization, we we don't get paid for what we do. We are all volunteers. So I felt the need to, to remind myself that I'm a very, very strong advocate about mental health. And the reason why I started these talks is because I talk from a personal experience that the moment that I started talking about my daughter's illness, I felt healed. I didn't need a therapist, but they were talking and um, inspiring others or just listening to someone's story or me telling someone's story, I felt healing for me as a sense of healing, as a sense of dealing with my mental health. And so I, I was conflicted that I'm a very strong advocate for mental health, but I, I wasn't taking care of myself because I was pretty much sleeping late nights and doing all this background work. before you come on social media, you've prepared a lot and put in into a lot. So I, I took a step back and I decided to actually practice proper, proper self-care, which actually continued because I... I I did a challenge where I could post about um, everything that I was doing for those 28 days, and I wanted to get into a routine, which I, I have, it, it, it takes time, but I have sort of got a routine to remind myself that I should be doing things better to take care of myself, because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't be able to take care of others. So yep. that's, that's the most important thing. We are all so passionate about what we do, but I think the most important thing thing or the most important person you should take care of before anything else is yourself
0: Mm -hmm. i completely agree and i think that's often a really massive challenge for people who work in the healthcare space but it's because they they want to give 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 that sometimes we forget that actually we need to give a little back to ourselves so that we can continue to give as well what are you Maybe what are a couple of your favorite self-care practices while we're on the topic? Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. I, I-
1: love because I, I can actually tell the difference just by waking up and seeing myself in the mirror. I'll tell myself that I've had a very good rest, sleep. My face can tell. I, I woke up the other day. I was speaking to my friend. I've got my best friend for over 30 years. And then she, she was speaking to me like, oh, your face looks nice. What have you done? I was like, nothing. Nothing. When you see me like this, it means that I've had a very good sleep. So I sleep. I try to have now at least eight hours sleep before I used to be then three to four hours, which was terrible. But I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for at least seven, eight hours sleep. Also, drinking is something that I also I, I told a true story that there was a time that I almost passed out because I realized that I had not drank enough and ate enough for two days because I was just so busy. Mm. And I was home alone and I almost passed out. I had to make myself being a nurse. I remembered that I know the signs. I quickly made homemade oral hydration salts and took like five glasses of just salt, sugar and water, you know, and I was able to feel better after some time. So drinking is one of them. I also try to, if I can, not so much the weather is terrible. I I like walking and running with my dog. Mm. I just go around the block. I've got a very big dog. And he, he pulls me. And I think the best way to make him exercise is to run with him. So I just go around maybe twice the, around the block and just, you know, jogging a little bit and walking. So those are my top three. Just mm. for one, I gave you three.
0: Super yes. simple stuff as well. <laughs> and uh, sleep. I'm looking. I've got two little kids and I'm looking forward to <laughs> when I can sleep again. It's going to be so yeah. good. Um, yeah. Agnes. Just a couple more questions for you. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about how we can advocate for, for others and for ourselves. I guess to really impact health outcomes, what we want to do, though, as well, is to help our patients advocate for themselves, because they're, they're with us often for such a short period of their health journey, which we can help them with, obviously. But one of the best things that we can do for them is to help them help themselves later on. So how, how can we go about empowering our patients to be their own advocate?
1: I and then this is what I, I spoke about before that, you know, what are you really passionate about? And sometimes you don't even have to dig deep because if you are in that uh, cycle already where you feel like you've got a chronic illness or you have a child who's uh, living with a chronic illness, that's just right there is the, you know, the tick box where you say, I've got this and I need to speak about it. So I, I always tell people that it doesn't take much. The, the world this, these days has made it so easy for us to speak about what we what we are passionate about social media has make made it so easy and so finding information is uh, is, is is easy connecting with people like you and i connected at, on linkedin it's easy social media is is just the internet it's got so much information so i guess is to firstly understand what what it is that you want to 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 advocate about and make sure that you educate yourself because advocating is about knowing, being an expert in that area. So I feel you have to educate yourself and there's so much resources. If you can't find it, ask. If you can't find uh, the person to ask, connect. Because I've I've connected with hematologists and on LinkedIn and uh, vice versa. People have connected with me. After a while, they ask me something and just ask and see what information you can get. And yeah, available. I've always said, you know, I can help people to sort of identify what it is that you are passionate about and how you can go through raising awareness and the steps. I always talk about the steps that I took, which I have used in five states in Australia because we started off in Melbourne, but now we've branched out to, to four other states. We are in all the states within a space of three years. And that has worked for us for all the three states, just being able to identify what is it that I'm passionate about and how can I go about raising awareness. And one of the things that has really worked is social media and the Internet
0: yeah yeah and i think i mean you, you make the point about there being a lot of information out there and there is a lot of great information out there if you know where to look yeah. but there's also a lot of terrible 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 okay. information yeah. out there as well which looks legitimate to people that are just starting out in terms of understanding their health and understanding their health journey as well and I, so i think i guess one of one of our roles as is health professionals when we're looking to empower people to advocate for themselves and advocate for their own health is to is to point them in the direction of the legitimate resources legitimate the resources that are that are factual and that are positive and that are helpful as well
1: yeah yeah definitely i think that's one of the most important things and i always uh, try to tell people if you are a student even if you have like a student in your in your home it's very very easy to get to resources that are legitimate but also government websites the org websites the google scholars these are some of the free resources where you can go to don't necessarily have to pay to to have like legit articles there's so much free legit information but I guess, as you said, you have to know where to get that information and to understand that if I go to this website, is it legit or not? So those mm. are the things that we need to look out for.
0: Yeah. yeah, And I think that, that that's often helpful. And, and one of the things that I do with my patients is, is point them to resources that I know are good. Mm-hmm. And, hey, you want to find out a little bit more about this, you should go and check out this this website or you should go and have a look at, at these articles and they'll give you a little bit more information or watch some of watch some of this person's videos and, and kind of go through and and vet some of the resources yeah. for for your patients as well. So that you know at least they're getting some positive information that's coming through there because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that is a little there's bit scary little- out there
1: a lot of stuff and uh, you just have to be very careful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agnes, if people are, if people are interested in the work that, uh, that you do, uh, want to find out a little bit more about any of the stuff that you do, actually, what's the, what's the best way for them to connect with, with you or to jump on in and find out a little bit more about it?
1: So the best ways for me are two things, LinkedIn, so through LinkedIn you find all my contacts, but I'm on all pretty much all social media platforms. So I'm on LinkedIn, my full name's Agnes, and so far you can find that I I advocate obviously for sickle cell disease. I've got an organisation called Australian Sickle Cell Advocacy, but through that um, I'm also an advocate consultant. Which is where I was saying you really don't have to to just be uh, able to advocate about a healthcare condition. It can be anything in our community. And pretty much the, the plan is something very similar to what has worked for us. And I use my example, as I've said, we've managed to, to have three, four organizations in five, starting off in Melbourne, together with Melbourne, that's five states where we, we started advocating for sickle cell disease. So, But I also wake. I'm an RN. (laughs) I advocate for sickle cell disease. I'm an advocate consultant. And if you're in Australia, I also look look out for people who live in their own homes. I've got a company called Unique Living Options. But all that information, you can be able to find me on LinkedIn and Facebook under the same names.
0: Awesome. I should uh, I should probably let you get back to work then, Agnes, with all of the stuff that you've got going on. But thank you again for, for coming on today and sharing a little bit of your knowledge in regards to sickle cell disease and also patient advocacy and, and advocacy for, for life in general. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Uh, it was lovely to just uh, talk about something that we both like. So thank you so much.
0: And Agnes, uh, before we sign off, so as I said at the start, I like to get you guys to pose a question to the community as well, who really kind of want to push the needle forward for themselves in this area of their practice. Do you have a question or a couple of questions um, or a story or, or a comment just to prompt us a little bit more to develop this area?
1: Yeah. And I think I've uh, discussed this somewhere and the, the answers that I, I was uh, answering some of the questions you asked me, it's pretty much like, what are you passionate about? If you want to create change in whatever areas of your life, you really, we all have that passion within us and it takes something like this to somebody ask, to uh, pose that question. Then you can sit back and say, hmm, I am passionate about this. I may be in New Zealand and I've seen that there's communities like right now, something happening in in Afghanistan. Of of course, you can't change the world, Mm -hmm. but you can support in one way or the other. There's a lot of things happening within our communities in New Zealand itself, in Australia. What can you do to change the world? We all have that passion that has been instilled in us by God. I'm, I'm a very strong Christian. And if it's not just God, there's just a higher universe out there where you feel something is just right. So what are you passionate about? And how can you change someone's life?
0: It's a, that's an awesome question. And if I may, I'm add a little bit onto that one as well, because sometimes, like if I'd asked myself that question, what are you passionate about 10 years ago? I probably would have given quite a bland, like just generic answer.
1: So I that think, question I think, uh, goes yeah. hand in hand, Chris. It goes hand in hand. What are you passionate about? That can change someone's life. It doesn't have mm. to be about you.
0: Yeah. So what can yeah. you do
1: to better someone's life?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think, and and also kind of going on from that a little bit is, is like, why are you passionate about that? Or what part of that are you passionate about? Because it doesn't always need to be a really wide, wide-ranging scope. It might be something really, really niche as well. So, exactly. if you don't come up with something great straight away, think what part of that am I passionate about? Yeah, yeah, awesome. Thank you again so much, Agnes. It's been uh, it's been a privilege to have a chat with you.
1: No, thank you. Thank you so much for connecting. This is why I love LinkedIn. We connect from all parts of the world. Thank you so much.
0: That is a wrap. Thanks everyone for tuning into the show. If you've enjoyed it, then make sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the weekly episodes. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to share this out with a mate that you reckon might enjoy it And if you want to enhance your skills in this area even more, then watch out for the Art of Healthcare community coming in August 2021. It's a truly interdisciplinary space for us to upskill our art. If you want a sneak peek, for more info, head over to artofhealthcare.mn.co. That's artofhealthcare.mn.co. And a couple of quick thank yous. First of all, thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music. And thank you to you guys for joining me as we look to improve our art.